All right, we are back. We promised to talk about our America's economic meltdown, but let's defer that for a few moments and do a few other miscellaneous items. We noted that we depend on input from our listeners, and uh, and and uh, we'd like to start off noting that the KDVS's GM Ben Johnson sent us a very interesting email, noting that there's a study demonstrating that texting while driving is apparently more dangerous than drugs and alcohol. Ben pointed out a British study shows that drivers who text and drive become more than one-third slower than if they were coherent, coherent and not texting. This was compared in the study to a person at the DUI limit of alcohol or under the influence of marijuana. Text messaging lowered the reaction time by 35%. That's compared to people high on marijuana, which saw a slowed reaction by 21%, and those who were drunk, who were slowed by just 12%. Now, apparently, when they enacted a law that requires us to have those god-awful headsets uh, here in California... Um, they, they, they left a loophole in for text messaging. That's, that's still perfectly legal. So the legislature is trying to decide what to do about that. And, uh, and apparently, I think on the propositions there, this comes up as well in November. I haven't checked that out. But uh, there was just a big train wreck in Los Angeles with 25 deaths. It's determined that the, the engineer was text messaging just before he plowed into another train without even so much as touching the brakes. So if you're tempted to text, message while driving, please knock it off. The life you save may be your own. Thanks for that, Ben. Uh, an item from the miscellaneous file that I just have to mention comes from Rolling Stone's September uh, 18th issue. Where in George Bush style, they assessed uh, people's statements out there and whether they stacked up as being with us or against us. Scoring pretty high on the against us scale was John McCain for his quote that uh, the need for a new military draft, well, that was something he said, quote, I don't disagree, unquote. And we're sorry to see they did not assess Sarah Palin's comment made uh, a couple weeks back that, uh, well, if Russia is invading Georgia and Georgia's part of NATO, well, we'll just have to go to war. Apparently, Sarah Palin, age 44, being born in 1964, is the first person on the national ticket to be born after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Perhaps this explains why it is she's forgotten the fact that going to war with Russia, a nation still in possession of something like 15,000 nuclear weapons, may not be such a cakewalk. And and by the way, how about the story that in Wasilla, Alaska, that uh, women who are the victims of rape were expected by police to pay $1,200 for the rape kit used as part of the investigation into the crime against them. Apparently, the fact that Wasilla had this policy prompted the Alaska legislature to then require all police agencies in the state to provide that to rape victims without charge. Now, we're not sure that can be hung on Sarah Palin, but we need to do a little further research. If you know more about that story, please send us an email at info at radioparallax.com. But continuing on with more, one of the more amusing selections from Rolling Stone in terms of the with us and against us was the quote listed somewhat to the with us side from Michael Dukakis, who apparently said recently, I owe the American people an apology. If I'd beaten the old man, you'd have never heard of the kid. But then again, Michael Dukakis was saddled with his campaign manager, Susan Estridge, who managed to convert his 20-point poll lead into a loss in November of that year. Susan Estridge still surfaces now and again as a pundit. And uh, speaking of punditry, uh, 
Al Gore's campaign manager, Donna Brazile, is also trotted out now and again as someone we should be listening to as to how to, uh, how to prevail in the political arena. What's next? Bringing back Captain Hazelwood of the Exxon Valdez to give a course on boating safety? And we remain uh, dismayed to note uh, the demotion of Keith Olbermann on MSNBC, one of the few, perhaps the only uh, talking head out there in the way of anchors who consistently told it like it is. At least that's in our opinion. And of course, our opinions by no means necessarily represent those of KDVS, UC Davis, or the regents of the university. They're just our opinions. We think they're good. We think they're well thought out. But you... Dear listener, you are the judge. And speaking of judges, I had to laugh. (laughs) I had to laugh at the Parade magazine from September 14th, wherein uh, Antonin Scalia was asked a few questions. And shockingly, we had to agree with his answer on at least one. He was asked, you said there are too many lawyers in the U.S. Why do you think that? Said Justice Scalia, I don't mean to criticize lawyers, just the need for so many lawyers. Lawyers don't dig ditches or build buildings. When a society requires such a large number of its best minds to conduct the unproductive enterprise of the law, something is wrong with the legal system. Yes, you you, you just have to laugh at a Supreme Court justice describing the unproductive enterprise of the law. But the real laugher in this little bit was when he was asked the question, is there a role for politics in our judicial system? Which prompted the following reply, none whatsoever. The absolute worst violation of the judge's oath is to decide a case based on partisan political or philosophical basis rather than what the law requires. Said, ladies and gentlemen, by one of the five to four majority in Bush versus Gore. We've had a standing offer, I think, for like six years on this program. Unfortunately, we can't offer 10,000 pounds for someone to come up with this, but we have a standing offer to anyone who can explain Bush versus Gore in sensible, common language terms. Or for that matter, in legal terms, in any terms, so that it makes sense. We would like to refer you to Vincent Bugliosi's book on that matter. The Betrayal of America, How the Supreme Court Undermined the Constitution and Chose Our President. We think Mr. Bugliosi's book on that subject may be the best. And uh, curiously, apparently uh, someone is taking uh, Mr. Bugliosi up on his, uh, his other book, which suggested that George W. Bush should be prosecuted for murder. Apparently on Democracy Now! last week, at least one attorney general in the U.S. has come forward and said that, uh, you know, this prosecution may indeed go forward next year. Although my understanding this is a woman running for attorney general who has not yet achieved the office, so we'll just have to see about that. And speaking of some judicial decisions, here's a few from the miscellaneous file we have to talk about. Uh, the following have led to student suspensions in American schools. Apparently at the Killian Middle School in Louisville, uh, in Louisville, Texas, a student rubbed his hands with hand sanitizer and then smelled them. This resulted in a suspension for openly flouting the anti-drug rules of the school. Apparently at the La Vega Primary School in Waco, Texas, a pre-kindergarten student hugged a female teacher's aide and inadvertently buried his face in her chest. This resulted in a suspension because the child indulged in, quote, inappropriate physical behavior interpreted as sexual contact, unquote. 
Yes, that's from Waco, Texas, perhaps better known as Waco, Texas. My personal favorite from Dennis Township Primary School in Cape May Courthouse, New Jersey, a seven-year-old drew a stick figure holding a gun. The child was then suspended for violating the, quote, zero tolerance policy, unquote, on firearms. Well, so far we know of no children being suspended for acts of terrorism for drawing pictures of an A-bomb mushroom cloud, but, you know, we, we don't have all the data yet. And before we leave the broad field of, uh, of, of uh, judicial rulings, how can it be up in Alaska that uh, an inquiry as to whether the Alaska governor, uh, Sarah Palin, improperly fired the state's public safety commissioner, how can that investigation be put on hold for months because, you know, they're just saying, well, her, her husband's not going to appear in that inquiry. And what's described as a bid to keep an ethics investigation from becoming an embarrassment for John McCain's presidential campaign, Republicans up in Alaska decided to sue the investigators, calling the investigation partisan and unconstitutional and derailing it at least until January, long after Election Day. Now, we like to do catch-up on this program because we have a lot of articles that pile up that we don't get to. Here's one that I hadn't gotten to, and looks like this is kind of from the, uh, the, the moot point file at this point. It was titled, December Surprise, from Mother Jones in the July-August issue, asking the question, is the GOP cooking the books to avoid recession till after Election Day? Well, we believe the definitive answer at this point is no. The article remains well worth reading, however, if nothing else, for its analysis of, uh, of how um, Phil Graham has become uh, John McCain's financial advisor. Remember Phil Graham, senator from Texas? Uh, the guy who said at one point, I have more guns than I need, but not as many as I want. Apparently in the, 1990, apparently in the 1990s, Phil Graham was chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, wherein he routinely turned down Securities and Exchange Commission Chairman Arthur Levitt's requests for more money to police Wall Street. As the SEC's workload shot up 80%, its staff grew 20%. In 1999, Phil Graham pushed through a historic banking deregulation bill that, that uh, decimated Depression-era firewalls between commercial banks, investment banks, and insurance companies. This set off uh, a wave of merger manias among securities firms. And on December 15th and 2000, as the nation's eyes were riveted on the Supreme Court, which two days earlier issued its Bush versus Gore decision, Phil Graham managed to slip a ringer through uh, the um, omnibus spending bill. It was a 262-page measure called the Commodity Futures Modernization Act. This act, according to Graham, uh, would ensure that neither the SEC or the Commodities Futures Trading Commission got into the business of regulating these newfangled financial products called swaps and would thus, quote, protect financial institutions from overregulation, unquote, and, quote, position our financial services industry to be world leaders into the new century, unquote. Well, noted Mother Jones, it didn't quite work out that way. I think somewhat to his credit, uh, John McCain called for firing Securities and Exchange Commission Chairman Christopher Cox, but we've gotten quite a few emails regarding this uh, new measure being debated in the Senate to, uh, to basically grant uh, oversight immunity to the Treasury Secretary. We would refer you to an article by Kevin Hall from the McClatchy newspapers, noting that uh, Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, uh, well, he might just be given carte blanche to do what he wants, 
according to this, this bill being debated, without judicial or congressional review. According to Mr. Hall, uh, Democrats expressed reluctance to approve the administration's draft legislation that would leave DePaulson virtually all authority over this proposed $700 billion bailout. The legislation would allow him to decide which securities to buy, from whom to buy them, and which outside companies and people to hire to help him do so. Writing about this $700 billion question in in these times, David Sirota noted that the White House proposal includes not a single reference to how much taxpayers can be forced to pay private investment firms for their now rather worthless mortgages. Noting that to the untrained eye, this omission may seem like a minor oversight, but it is almost certainly deliberate. The question of how are American investors supposed to feel confident that the crisis will be solved if the very people who engineered the crisis are being relied on to solve it? And the article cites Mother Jones magazine, noting that the John McCain campaign is run by at least 83 staffers who have recently lobbied for the financial industry. Their clients include AIG, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and Citigroup i.e. all the major corporations that caused the financial implosion and who stand to gain from this bailout. The article closes by asking, how are we going to pay for this? Mentioning the fact that, uh, that it is somewhat insane to respond to what is inherently a debt crisis by firing up the national credit card and incurring more debt. I think we quoted George Washington on last week's program noting that the way to pay off debts is not to incur new ones. Well, not that economics is terribly logical. In fact, there's a recent article about that we need to discuss in the future. But I would like to just note this little miscellaneous item from the New York Times. Emily Hazley of the Yale School of Management noted that more than 20 state lotteries across the country are now experiencing record sales. The trend uh, experts attribute to the hard economic times. Said uh, Ms. Hazley, people look to the lottery to get back where they were financially. Now there's an economic stimulus plan. But then, is that so different from what the powers that be are doing with the national economy? Remember back in election 2000, one of the hot issues was, what are the two candidates going to do with the surplus? Yes, apparently the government was billions of dollars into the black after eight years of Clinton. And the Republicans scored points by noting that, well, Al Gore doesn't seem to want to give that money back very readily. We were brand new to radio at that time, but did note eight years ago that, uh, well, first of all, the idea that there's going to be any kind of surplus in the years to come uh, is, is probably a fallacy, as it indeed it turned out to be. And it is worth mentioning just in passing, uh, you know, a moment of civility in, in campaign 08, when on 9-11, Barack Obama and John McCain suspended hostilities to visit the site of the World Trade Center. In an unusual joint statement, the two candidates said, all of us came together on 9-11, not as Democrats or Republicans, but as Americans. And to their credit, they put aside their differences and came together at Ground Zero to commemorate the seventh anniversary of the attack. I think I mentioned it on last week's program, but I was very amused to hear on the, uh, the NPR program Marketplace an editorial by someone from the American Enterprise Institute blaming this financial meltdown on... The government. Yes, it was the government's fault that all these players on Wall Street were induced into all of their greedy schemes. Argued the American Enterprise pundit, of course, you know, and the, the most ridiculous proposal of all was to have more regulation now to fix it. 
But to even Republican George Will, who writes for the Washington Post, is somewhat outraged by all of these bank bailouts and corporate welfare. Will notes with some outrage that that Detroit is now striking for subsidies while the iron is hot. At least that's while the 37 electoral votes of the two automaking states, Ohio and Michigan, hang in the balance. In the case of corporate welfare for American automakers, Will pointed out that you can't use the same argument that they've been using for all these financial institutions, because no one thinks that an automaker's failure would pose systemic risks to the economy. Americans would just buy other cars. But to anybody want to make book on whether they get their subsidy? I'm not sure I'd bet against it. And you know, not all the economic news is bad. We refer you to Eric Lipton's article in the New York Times, as reprinted uh, we saw in the Sacramento Bee, about the fact that the world is now loading up on U.S. weapons. Noted Mr. Lipton, the Bush administration's pushing through a broad array of foreign weapons deals as it seeks to rearm Iraq and Afghanistan. There's a good idea contain North Korea and Iran, and solidify ties with one-time Russian allies. We're on a clip apparently to sell $32 billion in weapons and other military equipment to foreign governments. Senior Bush administration officials say they're confident that this is going to both tighten military alliances and combat terrorism. Probably also make your teeth whiter. The article quoted Bruce S. Lemkin, the Air Force Deputy Undersecretary who is helping to coordinate many of these big sales, as saying, This is not about being gun runners. This is about building a more secure world. Oh, and by the way, the article mentions in passing that in this booming market, U.S. military contractors are working closely with the Pentagon, which acts as a broker to procure arms for foreign customers through its foreign military sales program. We've talked about this before, but it's worth talking about again. The article raises the question, a legitimate question, uh, quoting a Travis Sharp, military policy analyst at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, that a big worry is that if alliances shift, the U.S. might eventually be in combat against an enemy equipped with top-flight American-made weaponry. And uh, arms sales have had these unintended consequences before, such as when the U.S. armed militants fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan only to eventually confront hostile Taliban fighters armed with the same weapons. To which Bruce Lemkin at the Pentagon has argued that, well, with so many nations now willing to sell advanced weapon systems, the U.S. can't afford to be too restrictive in its own sales. Would you rather they bought the weapons and aircraft from other countries, he said? Because they will. Now, we've talked about international arms merchants in the past, and it's, it's sad to note that currently the world's number one international arms merchant is us. And in closing, we talked uh, last week about the biggest weapon of all, the A-bomb and the H-bomb. And note again uh, that uh, when it came to the case of Ethel Rosenberg uh, getting the death penalty, well, it, it seems quite clear that uh, the worst she did was to assist her brother and husband in... Uh, in their efforts to spy for the Soviet Union and gathering atomic secrets. We refer you to Neil Conan's excellent discussion on this topic on Talk of the Nation last week. An interesting sidelight to this was that Morton Sobel, age 91, still alive and a uh, confederate of uh, Julius Rosenberg, denied spying for decades until the most recent evidence came out, at which point he said in, in, in answer to a question if he'd spied, yeah, 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 call it that. I never thought of it as that in those terms. From what I know of the case, it does seem clear that the government was looking for ways not to, e- to execute Ethel Rosenberg, 
but they were looking for her to cooperate with the authorities, which she steadfastly refused to do. Both she and her husband denied being spies right up to the end. Let's take a break and do some follow-up on 1,000 recordings you should hear before you die. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. (laughs) 